Good afternoon. As we gather for worship, we extend a warm welcome to all of you, to any guests who are worshiping with us today, also to those listening on live feed. May we all be strengthened by God's word and our worship together. Our call to worship comes from Isaiah 40, starting at verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold, your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. If you are able, please rise. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, from where does our help come? Receive God's blessing, grace to you, and peace from him who is, and who was, and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Amen. In response to this greeting of the Lord, let us sing from Psalm 24, stanzas 1, 2, and 5.
Let us call upon the name of the Lord in prayer and ask him for a blessing over this worship service. Heavenly Father, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Make us to know your ways and teach us your path through your paths are steadfast love and faithfulness to those who keep your covenant. Lead us in your truth and teach us, for your word is truth. Your testimony is sure, making wise the simple. We, however, are darkened in our minds and in our thinking. We by nature seek the things of this world rather than seeking first your kingdom, your righteousness, and your holiness. We pray, pray, therefore, that you would illumine our darkened minds by your Holy Spirit. Take our hearts of stone and give us hearts of flesh. Grant us humble hearts to hear your word and apply it to our lives. Let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The sermon has been prepared by Pastor Jake Tornfleet of the Redemption Canadian Reformed Church, and he chose as scripture reading Psalm 138, the whole chapter, which we'll read together. Psalm 138, starting at first one. Psalm of David. I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. On the day I called, you answered me. My strength of soul you increased. All the kings of the earth shall give you thanks, O Lord, for they have heard the words of your mouth. And they shall sing of the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, you preserve my life. You stretch out your hand against the wrath of my enemies, and your right hand delivers me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. Do not forsake the work of your hands. Let us sing in response and in preparation for reading of the word. Psalm 11, stanzas 1 to 4, the alternate version.
The text of this afternoon's sermon comes from Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Hebrews 4, starting at verse 14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. After the sermon, we'll sing before the throne of God above. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the words dedicated to are not found in front of Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. At least not explicitly, not in, even in the original Greek. But implicitly, I think a case could be made that these words are dedicated to someone. After all, the letter of Hebrews is addressed to someone. These three verses, some of the most tender lines in the Bible, are filled with encouragement. And so as you sit here, think of this passage as being dedicated to all you backsliders in the faith, to all you doubters about the truth of the gospel, to all you spiritual procrastinators waiting for a better time to trust in Jesus, to you who are filled with shame or remorse because of sin, to you who feel weak in your struggle against indwelling sin, to you who are exhausted trying to maintain an outward form of righteousness, to you whose prayer life isn't what you know it should be, to you who feel you don't belong, to the lonely, to the anxious, to the tired, to the persecuted, to those currently in a dark place. The words of Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16 are written to you. They're written to all of us because each of us fits into one or more of these categories of people. And really what they're saying is, it's time. Be bold. Come to Jesus. Now these verses mark a dramatic shift in tone from the previous section of Hebrews 3, verse 7 to 4, verse 13. In these verses, the author warned his audience with some hard truths. While we often take it for granted, there is a time limit on grace. There's a coming judgment on those who don't strive to enter the rest of Jesus today. While they still can. But here in Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16, seeing as it's still today, the author softens his tone. Martin Luther, commenting on this shift, remarked, After terrifying us, the apostle now comforts us. After pouring wine into our wounds, he now pours oil. He intends to soothe our anxious and weary hearts. He lifts up the name of Jesus in all his beauty, in all his loveliness. Come to Jesus. And while there are many reasons to go to Jesus, these verses highlight three reasons why we should come to Jesus. In the first place, he is our great high priest. In the second place, he is sympathetic. And in the third place, he is waiting for you. So in the first place, he is our great high priest. 
Take a look at verse 14. We read, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. This is a huge statement. And up to this point in the book of Hebrews, the author has been flirting, almost in passing, with the notion that Jesus is not just a great prophet, king, or apostle, but a priest. And not just any priest, but a high priest. And here, not just any high priest, but a great high priest. In the Greek, it literally calls Jesus a mega high priest. The first reference to Jesus' high priesthood is implicit. The author writes in Hebrews 1 verse 3, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The next reference is a little longer and it becomes explicit. It is in Hebrews 2 verse 17 to 3 verse 2. The author connects Christmas, the coming of the eternal Son of God in the flesh, to his priesthood. We read, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation or atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him. Now, there's a lot that could be said about the priesthood of Jesus. For example, the fact that he's from the Israelite tribe of Judah, rather than from the tribe of Levi, like every other Israelite priest, warrants a fulsome discussion. Every Hebrew Christian would have expected it. And the author will begin to unpack these kinds of issues in greater detail in later chapters of Hebrews but here in Hebrews 4, verse 14, he reminds his readers of the simple fact that Jesus is better. Actually, he's great, and he's our high priest. So the question is, what distinguishes Jesus from the high priests and priests of the Old Testament? What makes him so great? The author highlights two things in verse 14. First, he has passed through the heavens, and second, he is the God-man. What's the significance in the fact that Jesus has passed through the heavens? The answer is kind of obvious, but it's worth mentioning. In the Old Testament, no other priest ever passed through the heavens. In the Old Testament, the high priest did his work in the various courts of the physical temple or tabernacle, offering sacrifices. Then on a single day of the year, the Day of Atonement, after an elaborate purification ritual, the high priest was permitted to pass through all the courts and briefly enter into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the place where God's footstool was, where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. There he sprinkled blood to atone for the sins of Israel, and then he left. See Leviticus 16. In contrast, Jesus has passed through the heavens. He has entered into the very presence of God, the holy, holy, holy God of Isaiah 6. Why don't we read the first bit of Isaiah 6 together?
is Isaiah's vision of the year of the Lord. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, which are angels. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So Jesus entered into the very presence of God. The verb tense is also significant. Jesus didn't merely enter through the heavens to quickly atone for sin and then leave until the following year when he was permitted to enter again. No, the verb is in the perfect tense. Jesus has passed through the heavens and he is still there. He permanently represents you. He permanently makes the case before the Father that he has died for your sins. Isn't that pretty great? You know, it's not difficult to hear echoes of Christ's ascension into glory here, is it? In fact, in Luke's gospel account of the ascension, it says that Jesus performed a priestly gesture as he ascended into heaven. He writes in Luke 24, verse 50 and 51, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. Admittedly, we don't know what Jesus said, as he blessed the disciples. But it isn't unlikely that he used the words of the ironic blessing in Numbers 6. This blessing the priests had pronounced on Israel throughout the centuries. Of course, if Jesus used it at the ascension, it takes on greater significance, doesn't it? Jesus is the one who died on the cross for our sins. Jesus is the one who cried out from the cross, it is finished. Jesus bore the wrath of God against our sin. And now as he sits in heaven, our great high priest says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lifts up his countenance upon you and gives you peace. Isn't that wonderful? It isn't insignificant that the Gospel of Luke opens with a weak and sinful priest named Zechariah meeting the angel Gabriel. When Zechariah hears that his aged wife will become the mother of John the Baptist, he is doubtful. Gabriel responds in Luke 1, verse 19 and 20, I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news. And behold, you'll be silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. In contrast, the Gospel of Luke ends with a great high priest speaking a blessing and passing through the heavens. A great high priest, a perfect, righteous, sinless high priest who enters into the place from where Gabriel came, the presence of God. A great high priest who is both fully human, he is called Jesus, and fully God, the eternal Son of God. 
He is faithful to the one who appointed him, and his speaking on your behalf, unlike Zechariah, will never be stopped. So then let us hold fast our confession. We could put it another way. Let's cling tenaciously to our confession. Let's maintain our allegiance. Let's go to Jesus, our great high priest. And the second point, he is sympathetic. Now we tend to operate under the belief that greatness is always paired with distance or inaccessibility. That seems to be the way our world typically works. Can you imagine casually waltzing into the home of a world leader, celebrity, prime minister, some famous sports figure? Probably not going to happen, right? That's why the author anticipates a similar kind of apprehension about Jesus as well. If he's so great, then he must be impossible to meet in person. After all, he is the God-man who has passed through the heavens. Why would he still care about us after his work on earth was finished? But look at what the author writes in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He uses a double negative. He could have written, we have a high priest who is able to sympathize. Instead, he writes, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. It might seem a bit clunky, but this has the effect of strengthening the statement Jesus can't not sympathize with your weakness. He can't help himself from sympathizing and loving you and caring for you. I want to pause so we can let that sink in. Life isn't always easy. How many times have you just wanted a listening ear, a sympathetic ear, an understanding ear, instead of a condemning ear? How many times have you just wanted to be seen and heard and valued when you've been struggling through a rough patch? You have that in Jesus. He sees you. He hears you. He knows your struggle and weakness. And especially because of this knowledge, Jesus is willing to suffer with you. Why? Because he is sympathetic. His heart goes out to you. In his book, The Heart of Christ in Heaven Toward Sinners on Earth, the Puritan preacher Thomas Goodwin has a beautiful reflection on Hebrews 4, verse 15. He writes, We are apt to think that he, being so holy, is therefore of a severe and sour disposition against sinners and not able to bear them. No, says he, I am meek. Gentleness is my nature and temper. Injuries and unkindnesses do not so work upon me as to make me irreconcilable. It is my nature to forgive. I am meek. Jesus' face is turned toward you and is gracious toward you. Jesus suffers with you. He gets you. Of course, here we find another objection. How is this even possible? How could a perfect person like Jesus understand my struggles? He never sinned. Could he really understand my struggles against lustful temptation or greed 
or selfishness? Was he ever tempted to hate irritating and difficult people? While in heaven, Jesus remains fully human. He didn't discard his humanity at the ascension. While on earth, every temptation that you have faced, Jesus also faced. This is exactly what makes him a great high priest. He doesn't only know your temptations theoretically, in the abstract, or from a distance. No, he has felt them, he has lived through them, and he overcame them. I love what C.S. Lewis writes about Jesus' understanding temptation. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of a wind by walking against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Jesus gets you. We have a great high priest whose name is love. As Goodwin says, God is love and Christ is love, covered over with flesh, yea, our flesh. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in the third place, he is waiting. With all that in mind, here's a crucial question. What are you waiting for? Go to Jesus. Don't show timidity. Be bold. Be confident. He's waiting for you. Look what the author writes in verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Admittedly, approaching a monarch's throne would be cause for some nervousness, and approaching the throne of God, even more so. This is literally the center of the universe. It is the center of power and authority, and God is terrifyingly holy. Remember, this is what Isaiah saw in chapter 6. The sight of God high and lifted up caused this great prophet to tremble in fear. But there isn't a hint of that in Hebrews 4, verse 16. Because of Jesus' great high priestly work, you have every right to approach the throne. This isn't like the old covenant anymore. You can enter into the very presence of God at any time, day or night, weekday or weekend. Notice the author doesn't call it the royal throne. He could have, but here it's characterized as a throne of grace, the throne of kindness, the throne of favor. You could say it's the center, the fount of all grace and kindness. The center of the universe is the place where God is pleased with you. He loves you. And it's because of Jesus and his atoning and intercessory work as our great high priest. Even with all eternity to reflect on this privilege, we will hardly have even begun to scratch the surface of this wonder. 
Verse 16 tells us something crucial about the gospel. We're not told to approach the throne of grace once we've cleaned up our act. We're not required to put on our spiritual tuxedo or gown before meeting the king. No, verse 16 says, come as you are. Come in your weakness. Come in your brokenness. Come right now while the tears stain your face, while your heart is distraught. Bring your needs. Bring your fears. Bring your sin and anxiety. As the hymn says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Do you feel your need for Jesus? Do you need mercy? Are you looking for grace to help in your time of need? Well, grace may have a time limit to today, but it's always timely. It's time. Be bold. Go to Jesus. He is your great high priest. He lives to intercede for you. He will give you all the help that you need. His power is limitless. His love is steadfast. His spirit will equip and strengthen you. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. His name is grave, my name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair, tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Amen.
Let us now make confession of our undoubted Christian faith with the singing of hymn one. Let us pray. Our merciful God, who is pleased to come down to speak to us through your word, grant us all grace that we may not be mere hearers of your word, but doers also. Give us the grace of your Holy Spirit that we may believe what has been proclaimed to us. May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do, as you conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus, who is the Christ. We pray that you would remain close to all of your children, both here in Sardis and all over the world. Be with those who are persecuted for worshiping you and need to gather in secret and in fear of death or imprisonment. We think especially of those in communist Muslim countries, also in war-torn countries like Ukraine. Grant your people strength to persevere. We pray that you would lift up all those who are low, those who are grieving, lonely, anxious, depressed, and worried. Grant them your grace and peace as many suffer alone. Help us to encourage one another and bear each other's burdens, but also to reach out and ask for help when we need it. Pray that you would bless the offering that we collect for Mission Aid Brazil. We pray that you would strengthen all those who labor on the mission field here and abroad. May your word go out to all nations in the world that all may hear of the wonderful news of Jesus Christ, the anointed one who conquered sin and Satan and allows us access once more to your presence. May we long for his return on the clouds of heaven, and may we live in the promise of his return. Guide and keep all of us, Lord, whether we are at home, at school, at work, or retired. May we, in all stages of life, seek to glorify you in all that we do. May we rest, work, and study, doing it first for you and not for ourselves. 
Guide us and keep us, Lord, as we leave here. Strengthen us by your Spirit and keep us in your care. All of this we ask in the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. The offering for this afternoon's service is Mission Aid Brazil, after which we will sing hymn 42, stanzas 1 through 6.
Receive God's blessing and go your way in his peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.